Today's CBS Sunday Morning podcast is sponsored by Tough Shed. Start dreaming of a backyard season and how great it could be with a durable, attractive new shed, studio, or garage from Tough Shed. Use our online design tool at toughshed.com. Then let our building experts handle the final details, delivery, and installation. Nobody has what Tough Shed has. Make this the year of your backyard. Give us a call, stop in, or design online at toughshed.com. Dream, design, and build with Tough Shed. Jane Polly is off today. I'm Lee Cowan, and this is Sunday Morning. We begin this sweltering Sunday with one of the hottest talents here at CBS News, Mike Walls, the legendary and often combative 60 Minutes correspondent. Although he died in 2012 at the age of 93, he is still very much a presence in these halls. Rita Braver will remind us why. Mike Wallace was not only a tough interviewer. You demanded special treatment. He was also known to put work before family. Were you aware of that as you were growing up? Sure. He wasn't there. But Chris Wallace says that over the years, he and his father forged a close relationship. This pocket square? Yes. My dad's. I thought for this interview today, it wanted to be on TV again. Ahead on Sunday morning, remembering TV legend Mike Wallace. We end every Sunday here honoring moments of nature. But it's not lost on anyone that many animal and plant species are on the brink of extinction. And that's despite the federal law that's supposed to protect them. Connor Knighton assesses their peril. Spot a bald eagle in the sky above you, and you're seeing the Endangered Species Act at work. But the recovery of our national symbol isn't all that symbolic of what typically happens to an endangered species. We have all of these small plants, these fish, that very few people know about. Unless we really change our act, we're going to have more and more species go extinct. Later on Sunday morning, the Endangered Species Act, a tale of survival. If you ask what's so funny to most stand-up comics, you'd expect to get a pretty funny answer. but. If you put that question to Hannah Gatsby, you'll be both laughing and thinking, as Luke Burbank will show us. Hannah Gatsby was living a pretty quiet life in Australia when her Netflix comedy special, Nanette, Welcome to my show. Uh, catapulted her into the international spotlight. I'm in this weird fame world at the moment where famous people who I don't always know are coming up to me, wanting to meet me. That's usually there. Hannah Gadsby tries to make sense of it all ahead on Sunday morning. Serena Altschul finds the sparkling water business is bubbling over. Jeffrey Kluger talks to rocket man Elon Musk. Faye Saley speaks out on personal pronouns and more. All coming up when our Sunday morning podcast continues.
The late Mike Wallace did it all here at CBS News, revered as the very model of a hard-driving newsman, never one to be pushed aside. His reputation has inspired a new documentary opening in theaters this Friday that, as Rita Braver now shows us, offers plenty of examples of what Mike Wallace did best. He was doing what? With you. Why? 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 There was the probing question. Are you not, perhaps, afraid of what might happen to you as a result of making these revelations? Oh, yes. I probably am a dead man already. The distinctive voice. I don't understand. They must be ashamed of something. Even the trench coat. Why are you so reluctant? Why are you so reluctant? We're going to get over here, Mike. We want to just get right over here. If anyone personified the image of a network television correspondent in the second half of the 20th century, it was Mike Wallace. The mention of my first guest's name has been known to strike fear into the hearts of brave men and women. I'm Mike Wallace. I'm Mike Wallace. I'm Mike Wallace. 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 It was Wallace's hard-hitting reports that made him a household name. You're a son of a bitch, too. Oh, come on. You are a son of a bitch. As shown in a new documentary called Mike Wallace is Here. So Mike Wallace is Here is the foremost dreaded words in the English language back then. The most then. dreaded words. Yes. <laughs> back then you used to say if you hear those words, you know you're going to have a bad day. Did you watch Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes as a kid? We used to watch, we had like illegal cables that we used to watch some 60 Minutes shows. But at 38, Israeli-born filmmaker Avi Belkin is too young to have seen many of Wallace's groundbreaking interviews when they first aired, like this one with Watergate figure John Ehrlichman. Secret slush funds, laundering money in Mexico, payoffs to silence witnesses, perjury, conspiracy to obstruct justice. All of this by the Law and Order Administration of Richard Nixon. Is there a question in there somewhere? The best question that Mike ever asked, which is not a question. What was it about Mike Wallace that captivated you? Mike was in a way the change. Before Mike, news was very objective, was very straight on. Mike had charisma like a star, like an actor. He came from the acting world. He came from performance. Hello, I'm Mike Wallace with Real News. Indeed, Wallace started out as an advertising pitch man. An actor, and also as a host of early interview shows. Good evening, I'm Mike Wallace. The show is Nightbeat. He was always obsessed with his career. I was more interested in my work than in my family. Were you aware of that as you were growing up? Sure. It wasn't there. Mike Wallace's son, Chris Wallace, is anchor of Fox News Sunday. When did your dad start being more of an involved father for you? When my brother died. Um, I think I was around 14. Your son died in 1962. Do you ever get over that? I mean, there's always that, the memory of this. I mean, Peter was a, just a... It changed your life, didn't it? In the summer of 1962, Peter Wallace, then a student at Yale, 
was hiking in Greece when he disappeared. And we went over and found him. <coughs> He'd fallen off a cliff. I, he, you know, what do you say? He was a glorious young man. After Peter's burial in Greece, Mike Wallace set out to change his life, becoming a better father to Chris and giving up his lucrative commercial work on TV. It was honest work, but I was not especially proud of it. He took a job as a CBS News correspondent. Well, here we are, Pennsylvania Station. Five minutes after seven, the lights have been on, uh, lights have been out for about an hour and a half. When Mike started doing news, he was looked down upon because he didn't come from Harvard. He didn't come from a background of journalism. He had the chip on his shoulder throughout his career because of that. Then in 1968, producer Don Hewitt recruited Harry Reasoner and Wallace to launch a new kind of television news program. Good evening. This is 60 Minutes. Where Wallace became master of the ambush interview. How are you, sir? What is this? This is 60 Minutes. Wow. You're contemptible. I mean, that's not for the camera. I'd like you to get out of here. There was no question he wouldn't ask. How many people did you kill? Five. But I don't think I could kill an innocent person. It may just have been that you were difficult, Betty. No, 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 Not no. difficult, impossible. I'm nosy and, in, and insistent. And not to be pushed aside. So this was his Rolodex. And, Chris Wallace cherishes know, the old-fashioned contact list his late father used to track down sources. Packed. But he made the calls himself. Yeah. He did the yeah. work. He did the reporting. You know, I don't think there was ever anybody who was any better than him on TV and in an interview, but he was first and foremost a great journalist. Hey, wait a minute. 60 minutes in here. Can you believe it? How are you? 60 minutes in here. Hold the phone. And gradually... 60 Minutes became one of America's top TV shows. As it started to take off, what was the family reaction? <laughs> Complete disbelief. Now, this is my favorite one. Gosh, what's your, what's your last name? Wallace. Mike Wallace. Mike Wallace. It was fun. It was exciting. He was tickled by it, and I, but we were all really surprised that it happened. But in 1982... Mike Wallace's world came crashing down. You couldn't ask for more troops. Therefore, you couldn't let the enemy be perceived as larger. Well, that, that is absolutely fallacious. It has no... Retired U.S. Army General William Westmoreland today filed suit against CBS Incorporated. He charged in federal court that he was liable in a CBS News documentary about enemy troop strength reports during the Vietnam War. The sham was perpetrated by the unscrupulous and arrogant Mike Wallace. Mike took that personally and seriously and felt that his whole body of work was under attack. It hit him in his most sensitive core of his existence. It caused him to feel like he's a fraud and that spiraled him down into depression. A depression so severe, Wallace revealed to his 60 Minutes colleague Morley Safer that it drove him over the edge. Did you try to commit suicide at one point? I've never said this before. 
Yeah, I tried. I wrote a note and Mary found it. In the end, Westmoreland dropped his lawsuit and Wallace would charge back into his work for 60 minutes, interviewing some of the most important figures of his time. Corruption is every place in Russia. Agreed? Why? To get anything done. Money. He sparred with stars. And you really believe an extraterrestrial, have the, do they come visit you on the porch? Now you're being unpleasant, Wallace, is what you're saying. Yes, this is what I was a little afraid of. Well, oh, you don't have to be that unpleasant. It doesn't become you, you know. But he always managed to have fun, even at his own expense, as with comedian and director Mel Brooks. The show... Is that a $100 watch? Let me see that one. It's about a $40 watch. It's a beautiful watch. Isn't it? Yeah, I love that. It's a $40 watch. Really? Yes. Lights up in the dark. What a cheap son of a bitch you are. You got the right. You're a great judge of cameras. Mike Wallace retired in 2006 at age 88. He died six years later, getting to see his son Chris become a big success. Do you understand why some people feel such disaffection from the mainstream media? Oh, yeah. No, I think we're wild-eyed commies, liberals. Yes? That's what they think. Was it hard to be Mike Wallace's son in journalism, or did it end up opening a lot of doors for you? Yes. This <laughs> <laughs> is the answer to the question. And when I became a young reporter, occasionally people would say, hey, Mike, when they meant Chris, and that used to sting. It still happens occasionally today, but I love it because it says to me, people will remember him. And now a page from our Sunday Morning Almanac, July 21st, 1853, 166 years ago today, the day the New York State Legislature voted to set aside hundreds of acres in the middle of Manhattan Island for a central park. The nature-loving journalist Frederick Law Olmsted teamed up with architect Calvert Vox to submit the winning design for the park. Completed in 1876, Central Park provides an oasis of carefully landscaped nature in the heart of a city chock-full of steel and concrete. If this didn't exist, I wouldn't be in New York. From cycling to croquet, there's room in Central Park for every form of recreation. And plenty of space as well for public events, both large and small. Slow down, you move too fast. Everything from Simon and Garfunkel's reunion concert in 1981 to Pope John Paul II's outdoor mass in 1995 to Christo and Jean-Claude's installation, The Gates, in 2005. Still, though, some activities are strictly out of bounds. You can see that this is an onion. Take the story of a man named Stephen Brill, who in 1986 was arrested for eating some of Central Park's protected plants. He defended his action as an homage to nature. Um, it's not like going into, uh, into a fast food place and ordering something. 
a defense that left Parks Commissioner Henry Stern unmoved. Except instead of eating in the park, they eat the park. Not to worry, at nearly a century and a half old Central Park. This is full of greenery as ever, and as always, open to all. The old-time seltzer water business is bubbling over with new vitality, especially on days as hot as what most of the country is going through this weekend. Serena Altschul, though, cools us down. Do you like some sparkling water with your liquors? Always. Always. Yeah. What was silly business for the Three Stooges <laughs> is all business for Alex Gomberg. Well, right almost. Ready? One, two, three. Oh, wow! Yeah. He's a fourth-generation seltzer man, working at the Brooklyn-based company started by his great-grandfather, Mo. You can say it's in his blood. So what's really changed since your great-grandfather was doing this? As far as the process, nothing. Even this new machine is about a century old. Each vintage bottle is filled with just two things. New York City tap water. We chill the water to 42 degrees. Cold. And a charge of carbon dioxide. This is our carbonator. There's a paddle going around that's actually making the seltzer. Gomberg doesn't just make the stuff, he delivers it. And what's crystal clear is across America, this pressurized mix is having a moment. Oh my gosh, it's everywhere. It's, a, it's like a wall of sparkling water. Melanie Hanchi oh is an gosh. editor at Food & Wine magazine. Should we call this category seltzer or should we call it sparkling water? What do you call it? I think they're all variations on a theme and I think ultimately it's just all bubbly water. To me, anything that's water-based that has bubbles in it is just bubbly water. And bubbly water, with CO2 added or carbonated naturally, is booming. Sales of bubbly water, of sparkling water, have more or less tripled in the last 10 years. And that can be really attributed to one big food trend, and that's the trend towards health and wellness, and essentially the demonization of sugar in drinks. One of the biggest sellers is LaCroix, but it's a crowded market with many brands and flavors. Some are even spiked with alcohol. And mix all the flavors with it, and you can really feel it. For Barry Joseph, this is way more than a trend. I like to say to people, welcome to the age of effervescence. He's an expert on the subject. He even wrote the book on it. We wouldn't have seltzer today if it weren't for Joseph Priestley. At the end of the 18th century, this scientist on the side was fascinated with how when you would hold CO2 over water and you combined it together, that carbonation would stay in that water if you held it under pressure. So it's water plus an experience. That's right. It's that experience of having the water enter their mouth and create this taste sensation that could be sometimes shocking, sometimes crisp, sometimes harsh, but always satisfying. So some people will say, oh, I'm not a seltzer person. I'm a sparkling water girl. What does that mean? I would say it's all the same thing. It's all just branding, it's all just marketing. It's all just carbonated water. What would the world be without seltzer and sparkling water? As some people would say, much flatter. <laughs> seltzer, sparkling water, whatever you call it, it's making a splash with all ages. 
including my daughter, who tried it with milk and chocolate syrup, an old-fashioned treat known as an egg cream. Yeah. Yum? <laughs> that yummy? <laughs> It's never easy for former comrades in arms to say goodbye. But as Steve Hartman shows us, it's also never too late. At a cemetery in Chester, Illinois, Perry Dodson is late for a funeral. 50 years late for the funeral of Army Private First Class Leonard Nitsche. Lieutenant Dodson was Leonard's platoon leader in Vietnam when in April 1970, their group was attacked and Leonard was killed. They loaded his body on a helicopter like this one, and immediately the platoon went back to war. And that was the extent of our grieving. And it just hit me one day, I woke up and I thought I never had a chance to say thank you. Maybe I just needed some finality. When Perry mentioned this pilgrimage to some of the other guys in his platoon, he found out something he hadn't considered before, that he wasn't alone, that there were others who felt the exact same way. So, they came too. Tim Rowland flew in from McAllen, Texas. Ernie Levesque drove out from Springfield, Massachusetts. And Glenn Fox came here from Newport, Nebraska. How you doing? On arrival, they met Leonard's sister, Linda, at the cemetery. So glad you guys are here. Yeah, we are too. Everyone gathered to pay their respects to Leonard. That's why this is so important to us today. Because we never got to do this. What had happened? But like a lot of Vietnam vets especially, they find it hard to mourn the loss of a fellow soldier without also mourning their own survival. My job was to bring Leonard home. And I didn't do that. He gave something I didn't have to. And I wonder every day why. The guilt is relentless. Every day. Which is another reason they're here. I'm hoping it helps me. I think it will. Now I would like to introduce... After the cemetery, Leonard's family and friends held a reception. About a hundred people showed up, offering gentle hugs and hearty handshakes for Leonard's army buddies. Really a pleasure to meet you. Their message clear. God bless you. His death was not your fault. Thank you for Thank your you. service. And we're glad you survived. So happy. Have any other... Grieving a loss can be delayed, but it cannot be denied. He knows People. we're thinking about him. Yes, he does. People have to feel the pain, share it with others, and then tuck it in a pocket to carry with them forever. <laughs> That's real closure. Not forgetting, but rather finding peace in remembering. It's been close to 50 years, but glad to meet you. We hear a lot about saving species on the brink of extinction. Animals, however, that are cute and well-known have a lot better chance than species who never make it onto a bumper sticker. Connor Knighton tells us that that is a reality that goes back many a year. Someday, if you are in the right place and if you are lucky, you will look up and see an eagle on the wing. It's a sight to stop your heart. The very first broadcast of Sunday morning featured this report from Cobbs Cook Bay, Maine, where bald eagles were on the brink of extinction. The national bird is an endangered species. Forty years later, the eagle population has soared, 
thanks to protections put in place by the Endangered Species Act. With your support and with the help of the Congress, we can reclaim and preserve the natural beauty of America. In the decades since President Richard Nixon signed the Endangered Species Act, the landmark law has grown to cover more than 2,400 species. The good news is that 99% of them have not been declared extinct. The not-so-good news is that only 2% have recovered, like the bald eagle and the American alligator. Recovery takes time, a lot of time. Check oh, out the- he's down there? Yeah, he's way back hey, down there. Okay. Consider this little guy, the dusky gopher frog, listed in 2001. 43.1 millimeters. Nearly two decades later, there's only 200 or so in the wild, all living around this one Mississippi pond. They're ready to go. These are very fit. Enter biologists bearing Tupperware. You guys are big chubs. You're going to do good. It's a picture of the Endangered Species Act at work. Inside of the plastic containers are more than 300 frogs bred through in vitro fertilization. That one will be back in the spring to earn his pay. They're being released at a second site in Mississippi in hopes that enough will avoid predators and disease and make it to adulthood and mate. This one's gone. <laughs> but time is just one of the challenges to saving a species. Another is money. We currently don't have enough money to recover more than probably 25% of all the species. So under current funding scenarios, we cannot recover everything. I'm not sure we can even save everything from extinction. Attorney Jake Lee is the director for biodiversity at the Environmental Policy Innovation Center. Not only is there not enough money, he says, the limited funds that do exist are frequently misallocated. There's huge biases uh, in which species get the most money. I'm gonna guess it's the cute ones. The cute ones are a big part of it. Lee says if you're endangered or threatened, it definitely helps if you are also cute, majestic, or economically valuable. Those are the species that frequently get the lion's share of government funds. But for every polar bear or sea otter, there are hundreds more, like the fairy shrimp, the New Mexico meadow jumping mouse, or the purple cat's paw freshwater mussel. 40% of endangered species are plants. There are entire groups of Hawaiian plants that are very, very endangered. They're, they're down to sometimes just a handful of individuals left. And whenever one of these lesser known species makes the news, it's almost always because of a conflict with one species, Homo sapiens. The courts agreed with environmental complaints that the completion of the dam would destroy the only known habitat of the snail darter. From the snail darter in the 70s. Well, the ain't worth 10,000 jobs or 5,000 jobs. To the spotted owl in the 90s. Because they want to have us give over our land and turn it into a frog resort. To the little dusky gopher frog who leapt all the way to the Supreme Court last year. Endangered species are at their most controversial when they endanger profits and property. When you got that call, had you ever heard of the frog before? Never heard of it. Never. In 2011, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service told Edward Poitivant that around 3% of his family's 45,000 acres of land in Louisiana had been designated as critical habitat for the dusky gopher frog. But no frogs actually live there. They're all 40 miles away, back in Mississippi. 
there's no realistic possibility that a caravan of frogs would hop down the road and magically find my land by some sort of divine or froggy inspiration. The government says the frog lived in this area before it was endangered, and Poitavin's land has the special ponds needed for its survival. Well, the designation effectively takes our land out of commerce because in order to develop it, we have to get the federal government's permission. It's not that they have taken your land. It's still your land. No, but they've effectively taken it. Earlier this month, the eight-year battle finally came to an end. The government abandoned its efforts to mark his property as critical habitat. But despite these long, drawn-out struggles, every once in a while, the Endangered Species Act works as fast as a fox. At Channel Islands National Park in California, these foxes had nearly gone extinct when they were added to the endangered species list in 2004. Today, they represent the speediest recovery of any mammal in the history of the act. The island foxes now show up even when you're not looking for them, as we discovered mid-interview with biologist Tim Coonan. No carnivore lives in a smaller, and what do we have? Got one? That's right behind you. Timing is everything. Yeah. It's an important time in the history of the Endangered Species Act. This summer, the Trump administration is expected to finalize a series of new regulatory changes to the act. One major revision would be to publish the cost for protecting and recovering any new species proposed for the list. We asked the Interior Department's Deputy Chief of Staff for Policy, Greg Rankus, about it. The law is very, very clear. The listing decision can only be based on the best available science and commercial information, not on the cost of listing the species. But if you know that cost, don't you think that might influence whether people are more likely to protect it or not, if you hear that it's obscenely expensive? Well, I think the public has a right to know. I think we want to be transparent in the decision-making process. Another change would likely reduce protections for threatened species on the list, the step below endangered. We want to accomplish the objective of the act. We want to protect and recover endangered species and threatened species, but we also want to do it in a way that strikes a regulatory balance, that protects people and the public from you know, over, over committing to this issue. Changes to the act are necessary, says Jake Lee, but not ones that can make recovery more difficult. The Endangered Species Act has recovered 54 species. It's prevented hundreds from going extinct. But that's not good enough. That's the problem. We need to find much better, faster, cheaper ways to make it work. Otherwise, we're not going to keep pace with the extinction crisis. Many species may not have much time left. According to a recent United Nations study, plants and animals are becoming extinct at a rate faster than any time in human history. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Lee Cowan. Just what's so funny about comedian Hannah Gatsby? Well, a lot, if you've seen her stand-up routine. But her humor is also leavened with some brutally candid revelations. Here's Luke Burbank. <laughs> I love being mistaken for a man, because it's just for a few moments, life gets a hell of a lot easier. I'm top shelf normal, king of the humans, I'm a straight white man. Hannah Gadsby's comedy and her way of moving through the world 
defies easy description. Uh, I don't think even lesbian is the right identity fit for me. I really don't. I may as well come out now. I identify as tired. <laughs> but it's that unique perspective that has fans lining up to see her new live show, Douglas. She comes at you with comedy, so she, you're all loosened up, and then, boom, she hits you with the reality of it, and you're like, you're, you're crying. I mean, I'm crying just thinking about it. I'm incredibly proud and really humbled. To have such resonance is, is incredible, and I'm, I'm so glad. If you haven't heard of her, that's understandable, too, because she was largely unknown outside her native Australia until just last year. <laughs> Thank you very much. When her Netflix comedy special, Nanette, became an international sensation. I'm in this weird fame world at the moment where famous people, who I don't always know, are coming up to me wanting to meet me. So that is a weird flip. I'm from Tasmania. Lovely place, famous for a lot of things. Uh, Potatoes. The jokes are funny. And uh, our frighteningly small gene pool, that's... But the parts where Gadsby explored the pain and trauma of her life riveted the world. And he said, oh, no, I get it. You're a lady, I'm allowed to beat the out of you. And he did. He beat the out of me and nobody stopped him. And I was certainly in a dark place in the year or two before I wrote Nanette. And even though my career was great, and I'm like, this doesn't make sense. I'm, I have success, and my, my ability to cope with life is getting worse. How about I just say what I really think and see how that flies? I've built a career out of self-deprecating humour. That's what I've built my career on. And I don't want to do that anymore. Because do you understand? <laughs> Do you understand what self-deprecation means when it comes from somebody who already exists in the margins? It's not humility. It's humiliation. I put myself down in order to speak, in order to seek permission to speak. And I simply will not do that anymore, not to myself or anybody who identifies with me. means that my comedy career is over, then so be it. The response to her honesty was immense, and her career didn't just take off. Please welcome Anna Gatsby. It rocketed into the stratosphere. For somebody like me, and uh, nobody from nowhere gets this sweet gig. Free suit, new boots. Uh, just because I don't like men. <laughs> just... <laughs> just, that's a joke, of course. Uh, just jokes, fellas, calm down. How is your life different now? I mean, it is all odd. This is odd. This is not real, is it? What is this? Who are you? Um, There's no sign of things normalizing anytime <laughs> soon. In fact, last week, Gadsby was nominated for two Emmys for Nanette. And this week, Douglas, which is also her dog's name, opens in New York. A long way from tiny Smithton, Tasmania, where Gadsby grew up, the youngest of five children. There wasn't a, a live comedy scene in Tasmania when I was growing up. You know, if 
whatever it was on the television, a, a comedian that came on. They generally represented two things my mum hated most, and that's men who shouted and men who think they're funny. <laughs> and so she would, uh, she'd just go, I've got news for them, and switch it off. That was, <laughs> that was my introduction to comedy. My name is Hannah. That's a, that's a palindrome. Maybe that's why she waited until her late 20s to even try stand-up. My entire family have palindromic names. I've got mum. Dad. Nan. I really felt comfortable straight away. As soon as I got my first laugh, I'm like, I get this. And my brother, kayak. I'm much better at that than I am at this. Okay. Um, you know, or even just normal chat with just normal people who I know. We'd love to show you clips from Gadsby's new comedy special. Cell phones, please. But Netflix has that under lock and key. So we got the next best thing. I walk on stage. People are clapping like idiots. <laughs> so I move the microphone over here. A bit further, but generally, then I take it out. And then that's my stage. That's fascinating. I would have never known you were doing that last yes. night. You'll notice I have a cup on there and I pat it a lot for yeah, some reason. I, I, were you checking the temperature of the tea? No, it's got a picture of my dog on it. So I'm just like, hey, just giving you a pat. Literally, that's a scoop. Um. Is, that a, is that emotionally regulating for you in some yeah, way? Yeah. One of the revelations from her new show is that Gadsby is on the autism spectrum. This is welcome to my brain. This is how I see the world. And that's why the world can be really difficult for me to navigate because every day is a new day. Every room I walk into is a new room, even if it's the same room, because I notice all, all the different things. Was that something that you didn't talk about publicly until this show or did I just miss that information? No, I didn't talk about it publicly before. Saying this publicly, you know, like this in the industry that I am doing it in does make me quite vulnerable. And so that's why I was careful not to really push it out in the world too much. And for those who might think Hannah Gadsby's comedy is a little too serious. I've written a show that is really joyful for me to perform. Um, I really am having a very fun time on stage. There is life after trauma and it is rich and it is, it can be joyful. Later this week, SpaceX will launch a cargo rocket to the International Space Station. And on board will be an image honoring the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11's mission to the moon. Rocket man Elon Musk is the founder of SpaceX, and he's a big fan of the lunar landing and of landing on other places, too. He talks with Time magazine editor-at-large, Jeffrey Kluger. It was 50 years ago, on July 20th, 1969, when Apollo 11 commander Neil Armstrong took his giant leap. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And became the first person to walk on the moon. What a three-footer. 19 minutes later, Lunar Module pilot Buzz Aldrin joined him on the lunar surface. Beautiful view. Isn't that something? Sparking the imaginations of countless explorers and of one little boy in South Africa. 
you came along two years after Apollo 11, right. and yet space seems to be in your marrow. Apollo 11, landing on the moon, was probably the most inspiring thing in history. It certainly inspired me. I'm, I'm not sure SpaceX would exist if not for Apollo 11. Elon Musk is the founder, CEO, and lead designer of SpaceX, short for Space Exploration Technologies. His privately held company makes rockets and spacecraft. I kept expecting that we would continue beyond Apollo 11, that we would have a base on the moon, that we would be sending people to Mars. And here we are in 2019, the United States actually does not yet have the ability to send people even to low Earth orbit. Which is why SpaceX is one of the companies that delivers cargo to the International Space Station while the Russians transport crews. That's because NASA's space shuttle program ended in 2011. It may be sad about the future. You know, when you get up in the morning, what fires you up? Like, what, what gets you excited about being alive? Here at SpaceX headquarters in the Los Angeles suburb of Hawthorne, what excites this 48-year-old billionaire is the idea that lots of human beings might one day live on other planets, especially Mars. One of the sweetest spots in all the world for people who love space is pad 39A. It's the best pad. Best pad. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance it's the pad that sent Apollo 11 to the moon. We have a liftoff. Many of NASA's most memorable missions began here as well. Hallowed ground at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. You're looking at a live view of the Falcon Heavy on historic launch pad 39A. I can't believe we get to use this pad. And that's that my question. Insane honor. What does that wow. feel like? We're not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> to be sure, since its founding in 2002, SpaceX has had many achievements. It's the first private company to launch, orbit, and recover a spacecraft and watch its historic recovery of an orbital rocket's first stage landing safely on an ocean platform. And Falcon has cleared the tower. There have also been a number of setbacks along the way. Musk often uses the expression rapid reusability. Why, he argues, should rockets make only one trip? Like, like an aircraft, like when, when an aircraft lands, you only expect to refuel it, maybe uh, replace you know, water and food. Clean up the clean seat it, Clean it out. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's minor. The normal expectation is uh, that you, you can refly the, the, the plane very rapidly. You can turn around in an hour and, and fly somewhere else. This is what needs to happen with rockets. Elon Musk isn't the only billionaire thinking big. Release, release, release. Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic will offer commercial space flights for tourists. And Amazon's Jeff Bezos has founded Blue Origin in hopes of building space colonies. I think it's good what Jeff Bezos is doing with Blue Origin. You know, occasionally I'll like rub him a little bit, but you know, I think it's good what he's doing. And Musk isn't only thinking big, he's thinking fast. Regular trips to the space station? To launch crew to the space station? Crew to the space. My, my guess is about six months. Visiting the moon? Well, this is going to sound pretty crazy, but we're certainly with an, with an uncrewed vehicle, I believe we could land on the moon in two years. But always on his horizon, the planet Mars. 
sending crews to Mars in four years, I, I think that, that sounds pretty doable. Like internally, we would aim for two, yeah. two years, and then reality might be four. One day, he even imagined cities on the red planet. To have a self-sustaining city on Mars, now, now you're going to say, like, okay, how are you going to get a million tons to right. Mars? Literally, yeah. a million tons. And that's some serious payload. That's the, yeah. yeah. In the long run, there's no telling what lies ahead for inhabitants of our planet Earth. But Elon Musk says he wants humanity to survive wherever we make our home. You want to believe that we're going to be out there among the stars. And that's, that's the thing that, I mean, I get really excited about that kind of future. I think most people do. The city council of Berkeley, California, voted this past week to ban gender-based personal pronouns. She and he will now no longer appear on official paperwork. Instead, will be the gender-free pronoun, they, which prompts some thoughts from our Faith Saley. Hi, I'm Faith, and my pronouns are she and her. It's increasingly commonplace for folks to inform you by what pronoun they'd like to be addressed, and also to inquire, as in, pleasure to meet you, what are your pronouns? A growing number of people place signatures on their emails that list their pronouns. Most American universities invite students to register and announce their PGPs, preferred gender pronouns. Signs on campuses declare, pronouns matter, and ask me about my pronouns. Some people don't identify as gender binary, that is, as male or female, and prefer to be called they. Some want to be called Z rather than she or he. There's also here. In Sweden, they often use the gender-neutral hen starting in nursery school. Even in the 1800s, linguists were trying out the inclusive hisser. Catchy. Yes, pronouns can get tricky. If you're a grammar geek like me, it can feel uncomfortable to refer to a single person as they, as in, it's my friend Danny's birthday and I would like to give them a gift. If you've assumed someone is male, it can feel unusual to call that person she or z. Seems like a lot of pronouns, but don't fear a slippery slope. In a Harvard survey of 4,000 students, just over 1% preferred pronouns that were not he or she. And if this pronoun stuff is confusing, that's okay. We don't have to understand someone in order to respect her or him or them. Preferred pronouns aren't going away because cultural changes that involve shedding light on the human condition generally stick around. I'm Lee Cowan. Thank you for listening and please join us again next Sunday morning.